Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House Thank You Built podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Frank, and per usual, I host this on Spotify Greenroom. The plan today is to do a little mailbag episode uh, with Mark Schindler, who is a writer and podcaster at premiumhoops.org and Indie Cornrows of SB Nation. Um, we'll mix in some Sixers stuff, um, but it'll largely kind of be uh, general NBA things. You know, I did a Sixers mailbag about two or three weeks ago. Um, and a lot of you did ask some questions that I think were answered in that last episode. Um, and so I tried to find new questions. Um, if you would like to see where those questions are answered, wherever you get your podcasts, um, you can go check the descriptions. Um, but that mailbag, I think, is about three or four weeks old at this point. But um, got a lot of questions that were answered on that last episode or have been answered in other podcasts. So try to bring in some new stuff. But um, Mark and I will kind of talk through the, the various questions we have about three i think we have five or six questions today but we do want to lead off with the john wall news um so we'll get into that kind of how we think that might shake out um you know maybe some suitors that make sense the complications of this entire john wall situation for everyone involved notably him of course because we want to focus on the players more than anything else um but i hope everyone is enjoying their week it is another beautiful day in portland uh, not a cloud in the sky. I feel like I've said that multiple times now over the last couple of weeks. Um, the fall is coming, but we're really enjoying some nice weather here. Um, but please rate, review, subscribe, rate your podcasts. Um, really would, really does mean a lot. Feel free to give me criticism, whatever you want. Like whatever you want me to talk about would be great. Um, Marcus here. I'm excited to talk with him and uh, and get going. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Hey, man, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm going to have to apologize right off rip. Hopefully I'm coming through okay, but Moose chewed through my pair of headphones that I have for my, my iPhone. So uh, I have no headphones that work with this right now, so hopefully my audio is okay. Yeah, you're, to- you're totally fine, um, but we'll have to, we'll have, to have a, a stern talking to it with Moose. To, uh, you can't be interfering with your, uh, your podcasting. You're the, you're the podcast king, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, he's sleeping right now, so please, uh, please don't yell too okay. loud because I'll, I'll, uh, I'll like when he sleeps. Tell me when, he's, tell me when he's awake, and I'll I'll take him aside. And, uh, oh, you can give him a very soon talking. <laughs> it'll be respectful. He'll, 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 he'll get a head pat. He'll get head scratches. Um, but anyhow, we're not here to talk about moose, but we can do a whole podcast about about our dogs if we want to. Um, we're going to talk about the NBA today, um, but you know we'll get to the mailbag questions that you and I both kind of discussed beforehand. Um, but we do want to kind of kick things off with the John Wall news. Um, being that it doesn't seem like he's going to play for Houston this year. Um, he sat out, what, the last three weeks of last year or so, maybe the last month. Um, it seems like it's going to continue as they try to find the optimal situation for him. But at the moment, does not seem like a buyout is uh, in the cards. All this has been reported by the athletic Shams Charania. Um, so, Mark, I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts on the situation? Uh, any details you want to add that I left out you think are important and just kind of get into what you make of this entire thing? Because it's it's a pretty interesting situation, I think. I don't know if interesting is the, the proper way to phrase it, but it, it's not something that you see that often you know, in, in the NBA. Yeah, um, it's it's tough from a lot of angles. Like, number one, I get where John is coming from because based on what Houston did, I mean – they treated the draft like a 2K draft in some ways. Like, I really like a lot of the guys that they got, but they got a lot of guys. They're clearly going for a, uh, a pretty clear um, youth movement, and John just really doesn't seem to be a part of that. As we saw, like you mentioned, he kind of got shut down later on in the year last year. Um, like, just looking at this past year is really difficult, too, because I think if you just look at counting stats, it looked like a really great year from him. And just from the fact that he was on court, that was fantastic. Like, 
John was one of my the reasons I got into basketball. His high school mixtape is still I'm adamant it's better than the Austin Rivers mixtape. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> um, like it, I mean, we've talked about this before too, just like privately. But like I think he is not really close to what he used to be on court, and that's not meant as a uh, to be a negative at all. And of course, it sounds like no, of course. I mean, he's, he's 31 years old now. He's not going to be the same guy. But um, what used to make John Wall such a good player offensively is his ability to get to the rim just at will and that's still there like he actually I was surprised by how much burst he has still but the problem Mm -hmm. is he has no lift at the rim right now like Mm -hmm. he had his worst at rim shooting percentage by far last year I think he shot just about 56% at the rim yeah 56% for clean glass uh, which was the worst since his rookie year um and that was also well shooting like the worst he has from mid range and taking a lot of those shots too. And outside of catch and shoot jumpers from three, uh, he just doesn't really have it consistently. Um, he also had the highest usage of his career last year, like right around 35%. Uh, I'm not saying that he can't make changes, but right now he, he, there, there would have to be some significant revamps to his game on both ends. Cause he's taking quite a few steps back as a defender too. Um, so I just, just looking purely on court, like I do think that there's a way he could be useful and we can talk about that. Um, but right now, like as he, as he is as a player, he's kind of a ways away from being a guy who I think is going to really uh, move the needle for a team. Yeah, I think and the, the bummer is like, like, of course, I think this was definitely kind of his worst year in a while, but you saw some pretty similar inklings kind of after his all NBA year in Washington um, you know, like it, well, he yeah. wasn't he wasn't struggling this much. Like at the at the rim stuff was was better. Like his his the final year he played uh, in twenty nineteen, he was at fifty eight. He was at sorry, I'm looking at a different website. Excuse me. Um, he was at sixty percent, and that's like I mean not a ton better, but it's, it's better. And he was at forty percent from short mid range, thirty eight percent from long mid range. So like the shooting was better, but I think you saw a lot of the similar habits there that that left me pretty concerned as I projected. You know, this past season, I'm not trying to say like. Oh, like I predicted John Wall would, would struggle, but like I think it's if you watched him, you're not that all surprised, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, I, and you mentioned kind of the defense, like even on the ball, like I think he can be okay on the ball at times, but like if you involve the screen, you can pretty much kind of neutralize him there, especially off, like off the yeah. ball. He's very lucky. Like he he loves to just like call switch late, like he is one of the kings of late switches um, off the ball. Who kind of just kind of let things happen there, um, unfortunately. So. Yeah, I, I feel pretty similar to you that I, like, I literally really, really enjoyed watching Wall in his prime. And the passing is still there. Like, he still throws some really, really awesome passes when he gets downhill, which he can get downhill, as you mentioned. But um, whether it's the shot selection or the on-and-off-ball defense and kind of the lack of pretty good finishing, um, or very good finishing, I guess you could say, given the frequency, uh, it makes him a pretty tough player in terms of kind of just fitting him into a lineup. Um but like, I'm curious. Like, how do you do? You have any kind of thoughts on maybe how this situation ends? Because it doesn't seem like a buyout's going to happen. If that's the case, like, obviously John Wall, he's earned that money. He should keep as much of it as he wants. But it's tough if Houston's not going to buy him out and he's not going to play for Houston. Like, if he doesn't want to play, then obviously that's fine. But like, like I don't know where he goes from here. You know, like I just think it's a really tough spot for him. And I sympathize with him, but I, but it, it seems like either he's going to have to not play or he's going to have to not get all that money, which is an awful spot to be in for him. But I don't know what the solution is given kind of how this, how the situation's played out. Unfortunately, I'm not telling him to do one thing or the other, but 
do you have any kind of inkling about how maybe you think this, you know, comes to a, a solution that satisfies satisfies both parties? Uh, ideally, John Wall. I don't really, I don't really care how it satisfies Houston, to be honest. But uh, how do you how do you kind of feel about this? And do you have any anything that kind of comes to mind for you? Because it's not a, it's a really tough spot. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I don't know what the path is there. Uh, yeah, it's tough because it's uh, it's similar. Obviously, not the same because it's a more money and B is just in a very different situation than Al Horford was last year. But um, it sounds similar into into like I mean, I think it's coming a little bit more from his camp, but also because Houston has pretty clearly not prioritized him. Um, and so I understand why he's coming from it the way he is. I think it's going to have to come to a mutual head because a they can't wait out two years of that, but also, I mean, this is very different from Russ. Like this, I don't, I, I think it's definitely like a movable contract, but not like movable to a team that's trying to win now. Like, I just don't mm-hmm. think move $44 million like that, given what we've seen from John. Like, I think it would almost would have to be like some kind of move to a team like, like OKC or somewhere that is. And part of what's difficult is that there really aren't too many teams that are objectively trying to be bad this year. So it's hard to envision like where you're going to send John Wall and he gets bought out. Um, I, I I don't know. Like, I feel like part of it's going to have to end up being him eating some of the money himself. Um, because like, it's like with him, I, I think the, the longer he's off court, the worse I feel about it. Like it's mm-hmm. similar to me with, with boxing. Like I have, I have a background from boxing and like, especially once you get older and you come off injuries, the longer you wait to get back on court and keep doing things like the easier it is for you to, um, or the, the harder it is to get back. Like mm-hmm. when you're 24 or 25, it's, it's totally different coming back and recovering from injuries and just getting back and acclimated to the game. And when you're 31 and you're coming off of, you know, pretty much three straight seasons of being out. So like he needs to get back on court as soon as possible. So I hope that something happens soon, but I mean, unless some kind of, like again, like unless it's some kind of buyout, I just don't know how that's happening. Yeah, I think I think the unfortunate thing is, and this is this is not a criticism of anything beyond John Wall's play style. It's that he kind of infringes on young guys' development, unfortunately, because he hasn't really shown a willingness to be much of an off-ball player. Like even though the catch and shoot stuff was good last year, he still loves to take a while to get that catch and shoot off, or he'll he'll get he'll the ball will swing his way on the wing and he will revert it into a side pick and roll rather than just the rhythm catch and shoot. Um, the defense isn't very good. Like you and I are both big proponents of surrounding young guys with complimentary, like complimentary veterans who are good players in their role. And I just don't think Wall really fits the complimentary mold of that. Like I wrote a piece uh, over at Basketball News earlier this month about how Christian Wood can really help them because he's a complimentary player who's not really a veteran, but he's well, he's much more established than their young guys. Um, Wall just isn't really that way. Like he, you kind of have to have that trade off, unfortunately. So. I don't. I don't know what the the solution is, which is a bummer. Again, like I, I really like like I really enjoy watching John Wall's passing. I can't say I've enjoyed as much of the decision making and defense the last few years, but the passing and the transition stuff is still really electric. Um, and I want to see him out there, um, but I just don't know what the path is. And if like if he, if he wants to keep the money, which again he's rightfully earned, I don't know kind of how it works because nobody with with a goal toward like big time winning is going to take him because it really it really complicates the rest of your your finances. And, and so, um, because he's just not that caliber of player anymore. So I, I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately. I feel like I keep saying that. But, like, but it, in the event, like, let's say, you know, the season starts and Wall kind of realizes, hey, like, I really love playing and, you know, I, I miss it. Um, that's not to say he doesn't realize it now, but, like, you know, maybe it's just, you know, when you actually watch guys play out there, maybe things change a little bit. Like, and he does agree to a buyout. 
um, potentially, which again, there's no report that that's the case. You know, Shams article said that it's basically they're not agreeing to a buyout at the moment. Um, but if that's something to come, if there's some some way where these two sides, you know, find a solution that, you know, works for them. Are there some suitors you like? Because I have a few in mind, but I want to kind of hear yours. But, uh, because I think like, I think Wall is like a kind of a bench guy who can get downhill. Like, yeah, he's flawed, but it's it's a lot easier to, to have a flawed bench career than a guy who's, you know, making 47 million a year. And that's not, again, not saying he doesn't earn that, but like, it just is the reality of the salary cap that it's really tough to build an ideal offense or an ideal team when, when wall is, you know, command that much money. So are there any teams you like if a buyout is reached, which again is kind of us just speaking in hypotheticals, but um, is kind of worthwhile, I think, because it could still happen if it's not, you know, coming to fruition at the moment. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious too, um, because I wonder if you'd be willing to take a bench spot. Like, obviously I don't know, John, uh, but I can understand having a little bit of reticence to, to go to a bench spot. Like I do think there's a way where you, if he really does, uh, like I think ideally he's alongside somebody who's going to command the ball more than him because we just know at that, that stage that's what, what kind of needs to happen for a good offense. Um, I think if he can get to that stage, like um, I, I mean, I don't really think that there's really no way for – I mean, I, I guess if, if a buyout happens, you could say the Lakers. I don't know if I love that fit. Um, I do think he would be probably like their best guy at getting downhill and getting to the rim outside of LeBron, obviously. Um, and again, LeBron's even taken a step back as a driver recently. Uh, like you could look at, let's say, um, I mean, he'd be kind of interesting to me in Denver potentially because they don't really have an awesome downhill threat as good as J- Jamal Murray is at getting downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still not like quite that guy to me. Like he's good at getting downhill. I don't think he's an elite passer out of that. I think mm-hmm. John has another wrinkle there. Yeah, so- uh, you could even look at. Miami would be interesting to me too, uh, because I yeah. know like they already have Kyle Lowry, but Lowry can play off ball. Like I think you don't have to have the same kind of uh, the same kind of you're not asking the same amount of him offensively, and you can just hope that their strength and conditioning program and and uh, training staff is able to help get him right. Like just in terms of that fit, I like the idea of that too. Yeah, I, I so I I didn't list LA because I think they're fairly good on offense at this point. Honestly, like I think, I think like they, Oh wait, like, they're, they have they're, Russell they're Westbrook. Guard. What am I talking about? Never mind. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. I, I was not thinking it at all. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. It's, um, that's I, I think, awesome. I think their guard rotation is, their guard rotation is pretty offensively inclined at this point. Um, so some of the teams I mentioned, like I think Utah could make some sense. Honestly, like, Utah is a team that, that needs a little more downhill juice, like Dallas. Maybe I know they have Brunson and, but like, I think that could make some sense. Maybe even Golden State. Like, Golden State doesn't really have any, like, mm. big-time creators beyond Steph right now. Like, I know Jordan Poole is kind of a budding player, but he's not really – he's a good finisher, but doesn't get there a ton. And they have some very good defense infrastructure around him, whether it's, you know, Draymond, JTA, Looney. Um, I'm probably missing some guys, but um, I think that made some sense. Like, Milwaukee and Philly, I think, do too. Again, all this is contingent on the price point, but I think those are all some teams that I look at and I'm like, yeah, they could use a little more oomph off the bench and just someone can get into the paint. And it's a lot easier to stomach kind of John Wall's inconsistent decision-making if he's <laughs> if he's not commanding such a large portion of the salary cap. So um, those are some teams that I, that I mentioned. Do any, any of those stand out to you that you like as a fit? I even thought of Toronto, too, if you wanted to go somewhere like that. I mean, they, they have so much, like, funkiness, but they don't have a lot of guards on the team right now. I mean, you know, they have Ren Vliet and, and, uh, and Malachi Flynn, yeah. a couple of those. I'm probably forgetting David Johnson, but... Um, but those are some teams that I thought kind of made some sense because I think there is still value in what Walt can do. It's just a matter of the right role and making sure that it doesn't inhibit your flexibility too much with regard to kind of 
whatever he is making of in terms of salary cap. Yeah, I uh, I actually really like the idea of Toronto. I just I still don't quite know what their direction is for this season. Like, I think if they were all in on like trying to win this year, which I'm not saying that they aren't, but I don't. My inclination is that they're not trying to be uh, like they're they're probably trying to make the playoffs, but I don't think that they're going to be too pissed if they get a lottery pick this year. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of my uh, view of it. I do like the idea of Milwaukee, um, but I just I wonder how that looks in some ways. Um, but then I, I I think Golden State would actually be fantastic. I love that idea because um, you could do a lot on ball still while playing next to Steph or playing off of Steph, and that's that's actually that's pretty interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I think the the one thing I would add I I really hope that he does not somehow get bought out and go to the Knicks because that would be uh, very unideal. Like anywhere that's going to ask him to do a lot of high leverage stuff, I think would be uh, pr- probably pretty rough. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even like that for them, with you honest, either. Like they have, you know, they've got Kemba there, they've got Emmanuel quickly. They've, yeah. I mean, they just paid Derrick Rose to kind of do basically the same thing as well, like get downhill and and do stuff and not be very good defensively. Um, so that would be. I mean, I know like circumstances change. Not like not like New York. You would have like signed Derrick Rose knowing that you know Jean Wall become available. But I think you'd be looking at some pretty big diminishing returns with those two as kind of bench guards and. I do want to see quickly continue to kind of get more on ball reps and creation and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't like that fit either. But yeah, I think Golden State makes sense. You know, Toronto is, is weird. But um, anything else you want to add? I feel like we've exhausted this pretty well on the topic as much as we can right now because it feels like a pretty incomplete situation that'll continue to, you know, progress. Uh, and you know, for for John's sake, I hope it, it pans out well for him because uh, you know he just he's a guy who I think is, makes basketball more fun. Um, despite kind of all the frustrations he can elicit. Um, so anything else you want to add before we shift gears to the mailbag portion of this uh, this stream and podcast? I just hope things work out for him. Um, I know that he's like, I mean, they're like it's been hard because of the way things have been kind of painted for him in Houston. Um, he had a really rough transition over to there, but like just in talking to people in Washington, like, uh, the way that he had an impact on that community when he was there just can't be understated. Like it was, I don't want to say it was devastating for him to get traded. Like, I don't know that for sure, but like in terms of hearing stuff, like uh, he was so happy in Washington and he did a ton of really great stuff off the court there uh, that I, I think you can go to an extent and say, yeah, like every guy does things off court, but like, I mean, he made the DMV his home and uh, did a lot of really awesome outreach stuff there. Um so I just hope things work out for him because he seems like a good dude. And I, I mean, it's so weird to say like, this is going to be, I think it's going to be his 11th year in the league, like right around there, uh, which yeah. makes me feel old because I remember watching him like start his first game, but yeah, man, I just hope things work out for him. Yeah. I, I, like I, I remember watching John Walton Nike hoop summit when I was probably oh God, <laughs> like 10 or 11 or 12. I think it would have been 11, I think. Cause I was a senior of high school, maybe 10. I don't know. It's been a long time, but um, I remember just watching how electric he was. And so, um, yeah, I, f- I feel similarly like, yeah, obviously I'm not old, but, um, when you want, when you basically kind of been at least basketball conscious for a guy's basically entire career, um, it does kind of seem strange when he reaches this point of a buyout guy who's you know, kind of on the tail end of his career, but yeah, I agree. Um, let's shift to the mailbag though. Um, I think we're generally in agreement about that. We just, we want, we want the best for John Wall, whatever that means for him. So, uh, we're not here to, you know, impose our own opinion on what he should do, but just kind of how we make sense of the situation. Anyhow, um, so this first question is, um, it's about Matisse Seibel. 
Uh, it says, how long can Matisse be a rotation player if he never becomes a credible three-point shooter? Um, which I think is, a, is an interesting question. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting for a couple of reasons because the, the language from um, our, the person who asked it, let me pull them up here quickly so I don't I want to give credit to everyone who asked the questions. Um, apologies here, let's scroll up. Uh, this comes from Guided by Brody on Twitter, at Guided by Brody. Um, but I'm curious, like, does that, to, to me, I interpret that as solely just a three-point part of things. Um, because I think he could develop more as a cutter. He could develop as a finisher, um, you know, attacking clothes. I think those are all ways he got a little bit better um, last year and over the course of his rookie year as well. Um, so, but I, and I think, obviously, the athleticism is really important for him. It's kind of the, the contortion, the, the quick twitch muscles, um, the ability to kind of get around screens so effectively and efficiently. Um, I think those are things largely tied to athleticism. But at the same time, he's still one of the most instinctive perimeter defenders in the NBA. Um, really smart at timing things on and off the ball. Um, he improved his understanding and anticipa- anticipation on the ball last year, defending some really big-time creators. Um, so I think he could have a pretty long career. I think the degree to which he's a rotation player will evolve as, you know, athleticism, you know, wanes or deteriorates, you know, as he reaches 29, 30, 31. Um, so I think he could be a rotation player for a while, but I think it's, it's a distinction between could he be a, a sixth man versus a borderline starter if he needs to grow defensively a little more versus a eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh man. So how do you feel about this, Mark? I think it's an interesting question, but one that requires a good level of nuance to parse through. Yeah, so I think obviously you want to see him become a better shooter um, or just like a shooter in general, I think would be a good way of putting it. Um, like not hesitating, just taking what's open, um, really gunning it and forcing t- people to guard him. But the biggest thing for me too, uh, it's less about shooting and more, can he handle the ball a little bit? Can can he make quicker decisions? Can he become a connective passer? Because he really struggles in, in decision-making uh, and just in general with the ball in his hands, in my opinion. And I think that's a bigger problem to me than, than being a shooter. Like it's not a perfect one-to-one comp and I, I don't love comps, but like, I think he has a better chance to be a shooter than Andre Robertson. But like, if you look at Andre Robertson, he was a starter in the year for five league for, for five leagues for five <laughs> years uh, by being a, like, even though he like a lot got made out of how he wasn't a shooter and that's, that's fair. And that's true. But also, like, he was a good passer. He was a solid passer. Only average, like, an assist a game. But, like, he was good at moving the ball. He didn't let it stick until later on, like, you know, year four or five. But I think he needs to get to being more of that, like, somebody who can do a little bit with the ball in his hands. Not even, like – he doesn't have to be, like, a savannah getting it to the rim. But if he can at least move the ball without bumbling it, like, that's huge because he really doesn't have a very functional handle right now. Um, so I think that matters a lot more to me than the shot currently, because I think, I mean, if he has any of that, he's close to being a starter because of how good his defense is. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are really important distinctions. I mean, I think Sixers fans or Sixers followers are privy to, um, especially in year one, it was kind of an, I, it was a, it was an infamous sequence where he would, it would be Matisse, uh, forces turnover and commits to turnover, trying to do something on the fast break. Like it had to have happened at least 10 to 12 times rookie year. Um, and it was better last year, but still, yeah, he's not someone you really wanted handling the ball. It always kind of felt like you were teetering on the brink of something poor happening. Um, and so I agree there, but, but yeah, I think like, I think to kind of maybe give a definitive answer. I think he could be like, you know, I mean, he's already, 
He's already uh, he turned 25, which isn't super old, but obviously for a guy entering his third year, it's a little older. Um, he'll turn 25 sometime next year. Um, I think you saw some growth on both ends last year. Like he shot 66% at the rim last year compared to 61% as a rookie. Um, now it was only 67 shots versus 82 as a rookie. So um, not huge sample and could definitely be prone to some small sample theater. Um, but I thought he looked a little more in control and a little more crafty last year. I thought his cutting got better as, as the last two years have progressed. Um, you know, the jumper regressed a little bit. He was awesome to start his rookie year and then has kind of tailed off since then. Um, mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I would expect him to be a guy who can probably carve out a, like a, like a double-digit year career. I don't, like, I, don't know, like, I don't know exactly, but the defense is already so good. Like, he was already a rotation player as a rookie, and the defense got notably better last year, especially on the ball. And so I, like, I expect at least for the next three or four years, he's going to be a viable rotation player. Um, and so, I, and I think, you know, you can expect a little more growth offensively. Um, and then as he kind of declines, he'll still be able to be a rotation guy, maybe just towards the back end rather than, you know, one of the first guys off the bench as he is now for the Sixers. So, um, is that a fair assessment? Do you feel strongly one way or the other about kind of the length of his career? It feels like, not that it's a bad question, but it feels like it's a tough thing to project given guys are playing longer and longer, it feels. Um, but do you think like he could have a 10 year career where he's a viable rotation player on good teams? Uh, yeah, definitely. Like, I already think now, even if he doesn't improve a ton offensively, he's on that track because of, like, I mean, I made the Robertson comparison, and he was such a good defender. He made an all-offensive team, and I think Matisse was already a better defender than he ever was. Um, part of it, I mean, like, it helps because Andre had a little bit of size on him, but, like, I, no, I'm not really too worried about that. As long as, like, nothing comes up injury-wise, I think he's pretty set in terms of having a pretty long career. Yeah, which is a, which is a really, really good outcome for a, what was it, like a 21st pick or 23rd pick of, of 2019? Uh, I mean, it's like, I mean, if a guy, if a guy's a legit rotation player on a, a team that, you know, can win a playoff series, like that is a really good outcome for a guy outside the lottery. Um, and so uh, props to Matisse there. But uh, good question. Appreciate that. Um, let's shift gears now. Uh, this one comes from at Gabe Left Brain. Uh, Gabe says, which players could make the jump to all-star impact this year? I chose four guys. I think we might have some overlap. We haven't talked about specifics of it, but I think we might have some overlap. But for me, the four guys I mentioned um, were Christian Wood, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Michael Porter Jr., and DeAndre Hunter. And so I want to hear your four, and then maybe we can talk through our collective grouping here. Or not four, but whoever you chose, I guess. I, oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I would actually go with a lot of the same. I would have OG up there. Um I, I don't know about all-star jump because uh, it's harder to gauge that, but I think somebody who I'm really interested to – I'll just throw out guys who I'm interested to track this year who I think are going to be towards that in general. Like, I would throw Christian Wood up there. Um, Kevin Porter Jr. is somebody who I think, if he has a full season and is healthy, I think he's another guy we could see take a leap like that, especially if his shot starts to improve. Because um, all the indicators are there, and I just believe in that happening. Um I promise this is not biased, uh, but I'm going to go with both of the Cavs guards. Uh, I think just based on how all-star voting tends to work, it, it tends to lean quite a bit into scoring. And I, I mean, this is going to be a much better offensive team theoretically uh, than it has been in the past couple of years. And I think Colin Saxton could take that leap of scoring, you know, two or three more points per game. Uh, and I would also have Darius Garland there as well. I mean, I know how high you are on him and I'm definitely up there as well. And I think, um, I feel pretty good about where this Cavs team is headed, even though I haven't loved their process for getting here. Um, so I would, I would have, uh, I would have those guys as well. 
Yeah. Um, so do you, like, I, I mean, it, it would be quite, it would be quite funny. We just talked about how like Houston's on a winning environment for John Wall. And then all of a sudden we've had, we have two guys like if they have, not that we're saying this is going to happen if they had two all-stars, they would be a pretty, a pretty formidable team I'd imagine, or two all-star impact guys. Um, con, again, that wouldn't be like, I wouldn't say they win 50 games, but they, they'd probably be pretty solid if they had two guys who were roughly top 40 ish impact players next year. Um, in addition to kind of some of the other interesting players, they have Jay Sean Tate and KJ Martin and, and all the other young guys there. Um, but yeah, I think like for me, I- I'm curious, like, I think Christian Wood could really, really have a nice year. Like he was a guy who was legitimately garnering borderline all-star buzz before his injury last year. Um, and I think his injury definitely hampered mm-hmm. him a little bit. You could see he just wasn't quite as bouncy and explosive post-injury, which makes sense. I mean, he had an ankle sprain. Like that is something that's really tough to just fully heal on the fly unless you like, unless you're just like, like you just can't do it mid-season usually unless like you sit out, unless it happens in like November and you sit out until March, you're just probably not going to be able to, you know, regain everything you, you had pre, pre-ankle sprain, depending on the severity of it, of course. But, um, he's, like he's so versatile. Like he's, he's one, like, I think he is one of the three or four most versatile like ro- rollers among centers in the league. Like, I think Jokic is up there. Um, I think one other guy that maybe I'm missing, but um, not many can can do what he can do between the popping and the rolling and the finishing. And he can also attack closeouts. Um, you can run him off, off ball screens a little bit. The passing isn't great, but I think if the passing takes any sort of like tangible step forward you're definitely looking at like an all-star level guy i think honestly um because the defense is solid too like he's so good offensively and while mm-hmm. he has some concerns defensively he's solid as a weak side guy i don't love him in pick and roll coverage but um i think he is pretty good overall as a center um you know yeah which yeah, he's pretty he mobile definitely too, get there so. especially if houston's like a little better than people expect which i think if wood is solid as you mentioned kpj takes a big step forward in year three not even to all-star level just a guy who's you know a a, like a starting caliber guy impact wise, and that would help a lot too. Um, Shea, I think with just a little bit of improvement defensively um, is probably there. Like if he has a similar year offensively as a scorer and passer, like I think he's basically there already. Um, you could have made a case last year that he was, should have been more in that conversation as, as one of the reserve guards in the West. Um, MPJ, I am really fascinated to see how MPJ kind of takes his struggles offensively. What you know, just in the playoffs because of, uh, people crowding his handle and being physical with him off the ball, like how he applies that, because he's going to have a bigger role as long as Jamal Murray's out. And if you have Nikola Jokic and you have Mike Malone, you're going to be a good team. And so I think Denver will at least like be good enough that you, if, if MPJ is a ridiculous scorer again, that you'll have the kind of the basis there. Um, if he takes a little bit more of a step forward defensively, I thought he was better last year in some regards defensively. Didn't really look that way in the playoffs when he was relentlessly getting hunted on switches and, uh, weak side tags against Phoenix, but I think you yeah. definitely get there. And then uh, DeAndre Hunter, I'm, I think, was really awesome last year when he played. Um, the Hawks definitely missed him after the first round. Um, he would have been, I think, like, I know, like, the six without Danny Green for how the series, but, like, the Hawks probably win that series in, like, six games if they have Hunter the entire time, honestly. Um, like, he was so good on the ball defensively. He had some kind of side pick and roll equity. He was such a good shooter. He yeah. attacked closeouts well. The passing was good. Um, and the Hawks are going to be awesome next year. So um, anything you want to expand upon there with the four guys I mentioned? Because um, I think all of them are, like, I feel like pretty confident that I wouldn't be surprised by any of these these four um, cracking the cracking the all-star rosters next year. Uh, I'm really hopeful with Hunter. Um, I am definitely worried about his injury history. Uh, just thinking that that's something that could pop up again, and he's had those problems before too. 
So I'm interested to see what happens with that. And obviously, I mean, I hope everything works out, but um, just knowing that that's kind of on the back burner. Um, I actually, do you mind if I throw out another guy who I hadn't thought about that I, I would want to toss out here? Yeah, absolutely. Before we decide, I, I totally was off. I forgot. Hunter wasn't great from three last year. It was that he was shot 58% on twos. He only shot 32.6% on threes, but he was just incredible uh, as an interior scorer. Anyhow, continue. I just wanted to make sure I didn't get that wrong. I don't know. I don't know why I assumed. I guess it's because he was so good in college as a shooter, but or percentage. But anyhow, continue with a guy that we haven't mentioned yet. No, you're totally good. Um, I want to throw out another tandem just because I think, and it's it's partially hedging, hedging my bets, but uh, I think one of Miles Bridges or PJ Washington could take another leap this year. Um, and I would probably lean towards Miles Bridges going off of just momentum from last year, especially when he got inserted to the starting lineup. He was freaking awesome last year. Like I. Yeah, I thought he was just a, like I, I mean, there were uh, every year there's guys, multiple guys who are deserving of an award, but um, he would have been my vote for most improved player. Um, like just in terms of the defense got a lot better, and again, like of course with the with regards, like you're expecting a third year guy to improve, but also like Miles Bridges improved every single facet of his game. Like he was that was he the was best. Really, really poor in year two. Like. Like it's, it's hard over. Yeah, like I, I was genuinely questioning how long he was going to be mm-hmm. in the league after year. Three. Um, yeah, I agree. And then year three, his handle looked like it had never looked before. Uh, he was taking things way more comfortably from three. The defense was way better. Uh, the off ball still needs a lot of work, but on ball he was much stronger, just more vocal. Um, and like becoming more of a four was really huge for him because, like, obviously, I mean. Part of what makes PJ Washington and Miles Bridges special is that they play together and they can uh, cross match and do a lot of really intriguing things together that that make it easier on one another and harder on other teams. Uh, and so I just really appreciated that from Miles. Like he, he grew as a passer last year too. Like he's always had the passing flashes, but having the handle grow and actually let him get some of those passes off, like he got used as a short roll passer and. Um, what he did as a roller, like, I mean, running double drags with PJ Washington and Miles Bridges is like, that's one of my favorite things I watched all of last year. Um, I just believe in, in Bridges and Washington as players. And I think Bridges is the guy I would, I would bank on taking another step. Yeah. And I think what's interesting with Miles last year is a lot of his growth just got chalked up to good chemistry with LaMelo. Um, and I think that was definitely a little bit reductive. I think you, I, I understood the basis for it, but he really disproved that narrative when LaMelo went out Um with his wrist injury, yeah. I'm trying to pull up the numbers here, but Lamelo was out from March 22nd uh, through April 28th, and over that span, uh, Miles Bridges averaged uh, he averaged 17, 17, 7, 2, uh, one block per game, and just under a, a steal per game as well. Shot 51 percent from the field, 44 percent, and almost six threes per game, and got up the line for a couple of shots at 82 percent. So um, uh, he had more self creation reps. There was some slashing. Um, you mentioned the passing. I think with Miles, it wasn't always. It was more about the decision making of that passing more than the talent. And I think you definitely saw him improve that last year. So um, I like that yeah. shout. I, I think like I could definitely see it. I think that would really bode well for the Hornets. They're really kind of banking on I think those three guys as their core. Plus, you know, they drafted James Booknight um, because you now I had Brian Geisinger on a couple weeks ago. And we talked about how they're they're really kind of leaning into Lamelo being their full time guy, and so um, they're going to need Miles to kind of you know help alleviate some pressure pj I'm, I'm a little more dubious on because i just don't love his scoring upside i just think he can struggle a little bit there um i think like he's got some really good shooting versatility but i kind of worry a little bit outside of that like the face-up is there but it's not 
quite there. Um, but Miles, I think you, you like was really awesome, and just the stuff you saw, like Sans Lamelo, was really really encouraging. So I like that shout a lot. I don't I don't think you're necessarily saying like he's definitely going to get there, but it's just kind of a guy to, to keep on the radar, and I like that a lot. So um, yeah, Miles was awesome last year, and um, really a big kind of yeah, swing definitely. from year two to three. And uh, I, I like it was really fun to see because he's really fun, um, even independent of Lamelo. Obviously, the Lamelo stuff is is wonderful, and Eric Collins jubilant reactions to every alley-oop they have is, is delightful, but um, even outside, I mean, even Lamella's not playing, he's really fun, so yeah, I think that makes sense for sure, <laughs> I think all these guys have mentioned um, could do, I'm a little I, I don't know, like we mentioned Sexton and Carl I don't know if they would be like all-star impact guys, but I could definitely see them getting a nod of the Cavs are kind of kind of hanging around the playoff hunt yeah, yeah like sure, I think. So guys I think, who would like, votes like, I could sure. definitely see both of them being above average starters next year in terms of impact, like um, like even like I'm definitely lower on sex than you are, and I'm probably higher on Garland than you are to by a little by a little bit. But I can definitely see them guarding buzz if the Cavs are hanging around that playing spot, that eight, nine, ten seed, and and they're going to have the stats. So, um, but I think they definitely be at least above average starters, which is a top seventy-five player, which would be which would be a good be a good outcome for year four of, of Sexton and year three of Garland. So I like those shouts for sure. Um, anything else you want to add from this section before we shift gears to a different question? Right on. All right, this no, one comes from good. our friend Cody Howdick. Um, apologies if I butchered their last name, Cody. Um, but uh, Cody asks, uh, I, I paraphrase a little bit, but he says, per game, where do you rank Embiid among centers defensively? And I got a little bit technical here. And I want to get your thoughts on how you would view this, Mark, because I think on a per-game basis, I'm largely looking at it through the playoffs, and Embiid is a much better playoff defender the last couple of years than the, the regular season. Still good in the regular season, but... Um, you can see kind of the intensity really pick up. Uh, and so I think for me, the four best defenders in the NBA right now are Embiid, Giannis, AD, and Draymond. And you can make a case that all four of them are centers, but you could also make a case that only Embiid is a center. So how would you construct it? Like, how would you, and if you feel differently, if there's anyone you would exclude or include, like, how do you want to go about this? Because I think it's a really fascinating discussion, but it does kind of matter how we label these players as well. Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. So I was listening to, uh, I think it was, uh, I was Game Theory. So Sam Vecinia, John Hollinger, and they were talking about Ben Simmons, and they mentioned Embiid's defensive impact. And one of the ways I disagree with them, and I think I disagree with most people in general, like um, I understand the importance of center defense, especially in regards to impact. I just think with Embiid, like you mentioned, I think I, I look at it less through a playoff lens. Like in the playoffs, I thought there was a case that Joel, other than Giannis, was like the best defensive player in the playoffs. Um, like he, MB was absolutely fantastic on defense, uh, even though they lost the second round. I don't really think you can take away anything from him because I thought he laid it all out there, especially considering playing on like one knee pretty much. Um, but in terms of the regular season, like I've been a pretty critical of Joel, and I think it, it's not even trying to be critical of him, it's just being fair to awards voting. Like, I don't think that Joel is an all defense guy during the regular season because. He has such a big offensive load that he kind of – I wouldn't – like, I, I don't want to say that he doesn't, like, try hard on defense, but he does coast a little bit in a way that I think uh, – like, I mean, you saw the same thing with Giannis last year because of his offensive load. Like, he definitely took a, a slight step back in terms of defensive consistency during the regular season, which is why I think you look at guys like Miles Turner and Bam Adebayo being in that discussion because they do have that every single night. But part of that is having less of an offensive load. So – I think to me, like during the regular season, Embiid's like a second tier level defender to me. 
Um, still like pretty much all defensive impact, but not consistently there. But like during the uh, during the playoffs, yeah, I mean he's just about the best defender in the NBA. What would those two tiers in the regular season comp- be comp- comprised of? I'd be curious to kind of hear your first tier and then your second tier as well, because I think this is where some like I think we agree on a lot of things, uh, like you know just philosophically with basketball and just players in general. But I think I tend to put a little more weight on the playoffs, and you tend to value a little bit more the floor raising, um, which but is not mm-hmm. necessarily. Like, I'm not criticizing you or myself, but I think that is where kind of we diverge a bit. So I'd be curious to hear kind of those two tiers for you and. And kind of who you think is better than Embiid, and then who who you think is kind of in that same class as him during the regular season. Yeah, so I hope too not too many Jazz people listen to your pod, but uh, I would say Rudy Gobert is a better regular season defender, and it's not like he's bad in the playoffs. But I would I would rather have Joel as a defender in the playoffs than, mm-hmm. than Rudy Gobert. If we're being completely honest, I think Joel is a little bit more mobile. I like his pick and roll defense better, even though Rudy Gobert is a very very good pick and roll defender. I just think that Joel is so good at timing things. He's just like, I just think that he has physical tools that Rudy Gobert cannot match up with. So I think like Rudy makes up for it during the regular season for his consistency. But like Joel, I think takes that next leap in the playoffs. Like um, I think, I think with Joel kind of what you're, cause I think Rudy is still the best drop defender in the NBA. Um, yeah, definitely. But what I think, I think in terms of just like sheer versatility, yeah, will exactly. be and fantastic and everything. That's so, we'll, we'll get into kind of the idea of versatility a little bit later from another, with another question from Cody, you asked two brilliant ones for this mailbag, but um, I think that's really important is versatility. And that's something that Joel offers um, that Rudy doesn't. And I do want to say though, in defense of Rudy, um, and I'm sure you, like, not that you're saying otherwise, but like the, the Sixers have largely had better perimeter defenders, which makes things easier for Joel. Um, like, oh, obviously, Rudy was not great in that Clippers series, but it was largely a funk. He was largely a symptom of uh, the, the the bigger issue, which was poor perimeter defense from Utah. Um, it obviously helps to be surrounded by Matisse and Danny and Ben and Jimmy a couple of years ago, and even Josh Richardson last season. Um, you saw a little bit in the bubble when when he and when he had a huge workload when, when Simmons was out and. Tobias was struggling and whatnot, but in the bubble against the Celtics, um, Joel's defense was not as good. Um, but being, that was partially because the perimeter defense wasn't as good, and he had a huge workload. So, um, anyhow, continue. I just want to point that out. Not that you were saying otherwise, but just kind of illuminate a little more detail on why you maybe feel strongly about Embiid as a better playoff defender than Rudy, even though you feel vice versa in regular season. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you're totally good. And I think in terms of guys who I would have them like that, that I, I think to me it's like kind of like one or two tiers, like – it's all a little bit interchangeable. Like, obviously, Giannis is tier one, pretty clear cut. I think Bam is right about there as well. Um, I would certainly have Anthony Davis, but it's hard, again, like with this last year, Hades struggled a lot with injury and just fatigue in general coming off the title year. Um, and somebody who we unfortunately haven't gotten to see a lot the last year, uh, Jonathan Isaac, I think, is one of the 10 best defenders in the NBA, one healthy. Uh, and, of course, I think uh, – I was really frustrated by it because especially covering the guy, I try not to be biased, but like I thought Miles Turner was one would have made an all, he should have made an all defense team if he had not gotten injured last year. Um, Like he was absolutely incredible last year. Like he was fantastic in spite of how bad that defensive scheme was. Um, And I'm really interested to see what he looks like this year with some better coaching and potentially some better, uh, better lineup versatility around him too. But I, I mean, he's just, like that he's a fantastic player, but I think generally like I look at all those players as close, like pretty much at or above Embiid's impact during the regular season, but Embiid takes a step up in the playoffs. Yeah. And I, and I think you mentioned earlier, but I really like, you know, 
I've, I've probably talked about this 10 times on podcasts over the offseason at this point, but like, like we talk all about kind of how the Sixers limit Ben offensively. Like I want to see Joel with someone who can actually re restructure the offensive hierarchy. So he can be a guy who averages 23 and plays monstrous defense for 60 regular season games rather than the guy who's average 28 yeah. and plays pretty good, but not great defense in the regular season. Um, because I think you see, like, I mean, I, I just, like, Joel was so awesome in the playoffs. I know he had some struggles, but, like, my goodness was, like, there were stretches where he looked like the best player in basketball. I know, it, like, he didn't sustain it, and he struggled in the fourth quarter offensively in a lot of games against the Hawks. But, like, my word was his defense incredible. Um, he, he's so good in that regard. Um, but, I, yeah, so, like, I, I do want to kind of get into the, this part of it, though. Um, would you say, like, if you were kind of trying to construct a playoff defense as well? Because I think your your view of things is absolutely fair. And that's why I think it's so fun to kind of parse through these things. But if you're constructing a playoff defense and you had your selection of any player, would, would anyone besides Giannis, AD, Draymond, and Embiid be in that top tier for you? And like, would any of those guys not be there? If that's a loaded question. So like, how, how would you kind of go about the playoff side of things? So I think that's really interesting as well. Not, not that the other stuff isn't, but I think kind of to shift gears a little bit as well, it, it would be fascinating to kind of hear your perception of the playoff side of, of this discussion. Well, I guess it's tough because, you, like, when you're thinking about the the defensive side, you have to think about offense too. So, I wouldn't have Draymond on that top tier. As good as Draymond is, like, and he's still a good player defensively. I mean, offensively, like, um, I, would, I, would I just think, like I would you think can look at offensively. I think good is maybe yeah, like yeah, that's a good way to put it. If and not to be rude to Draymond, but like, if he's not playing alongside Steph, like, yeah. the, the conversation around his offense right now would be a lot louder. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't have him on that tier. Like, I think it would be just Embiid, Giannis, AD. Um, and that's kind of the three for me right now. Do you think Do you think Bam could get there if he continues to improve offensively? Like, I think, you know, because I, I would have yes, Bam as the fourth best. If we're mentioning if it's Giannis, AD, and Embiid, I would have Bam as the fourth best offensive player there. But like, do you think if he continues to make strides like he did last year and the year prior, like he could – he gets that top tier, or how do you feel about Bam? Is there something he's missing defensively for you to, to quite be in that, that upper echelon? The only thing that's tough with me for Bam is that he's not quite the rim protector. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like that's it's a hard ask because, I mean, Giannis, AD, and Embiid are like the three best rim protectors in the NBA. I mean, obviously, Miles Turner, too, and Clint Capella, but like, um, a Bam, like, I don't, I don't know what Bam's wingspan is. But I, I've always felt like Bam's wingspan has never been like something that's just like ridiculously long and difficult for people to contend with. Like he's incredibly shifty, has really great agility and, and sees things so well. But I've just never felt like he's somebody that I quite trust as a full time rim protector. Like mm-hmm. I actually feel like in some ways, um, he's best served playing the four. Like uh, obviously, like more like four on defense where he can like similar to AD like. Where yeah. he can roam, play off ball, and muck things up, rather than having to serve as your full time room protector. Mm-hmm. And just to, so Bam, according to Draft Express, is a seven three wingspan. So you're you're right. That's not that's not long for center. It's long in the grand scheme of all humans, but seven three is not much for a center. Honestly, like I think Embiid is seven six. Gobert yeah. is obviously the wild anomaly at seven nine, I believe. Um, but yeah, I think I do want to mention Clint Capella. I think would you have him in that second tier of regular season guys at least? Okay, I, yeah, I, know, I know you don't. Not that you, you're sure. not anti Clint Capella, but we didn't really mention him, and so I want to give him a shout in case we have any Hawks people who are listening now or as a podcast. So Andrew Kelly is going to hunt yeah, us down, and then Brad yeah. Roland will be in our mentions as well because um, they are two big Clint Capella proponents, and deservedly so. He was <laughs> awesome last year. Um, anything you want to add to this discussion though before we shift gears to a different question? 
Uh, no, I think I'm good on that one. Cool. Uh, I enjoyed that. I thought that was a really good question from Cody. I think we, I liked how we approached it from a couple of different angles, though. Um, our friend Gabe is back again at Gabe Left Brain on Twitter. Uh, Gabe asks, "How concerned uh, are you about Cade's handle and burst as a ceiling limiter compared to maybe the rest of draft Twitter?" Again, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but um, I want to I want to hand that to you first, Mark, because I haven't I watched a lot of Cade early in the year, but as my coverage evolved more to general NBA stuff, I didn't watch as much of him. Watched some of summer league. I watched a couple of games in depth, but. I feel like you have a little better handle on this side of things. So I'm going to defer to you and I'll kind of play off of any comments you, you make that I feel I can provide insights on. Yeah. Um, so I think I look at it almost in terms of intersection of athleticism and skill. Um, so like, obviously it's been made out. Like, I think, I still think Kate is like a B plus a minus level athlete. Like he's still incredibly good. I think he, they got a little bit overblown his, like obviously the burst is not incredible, but um, the way that his shooting has blossomed and evolved. I think the best way that I've heard it described, uh, Sean Darenthal from over at the second former scout for the Sixers, um, best talked about it on a, on a podcast once. And he, he talked about how he actually thinks like the best comparison out there in the NBA for the kind of player that Cade could become is like Paul George. And I think that's a really great comparison in my mind. Like, I think Cade comes in with a, like definitely a better handle and, and much better passing and court vision than I think Paul's ever had. Um, and that's not a slight, like Paul still is a pretty solid passer, but like you think more like, okay, Paul came in as an absolute fantastic athlete with like very little handle capability. Like his handle growth is well-documented is one of the best of all time. So I think I look at it in terms of like, you look at how Paul's game has evolved, especially when he was in OKC, a lot of his pick and roll playmaking came out of being an absolutely fantastic, phenomenal knockdown shooter. Like actually we don't talk enough about how Paul George is probably one of the best shooters in the NBA or not probably like he is one of the best shooters in Mm -hmm. the NBA, like movement self-created. One Um, one of the best pull-up shooters of all time, honestly. Like, I mean, exactly. And I look at the same thing with Cade. Like Cade is coming in as a better shooter than Paul was. Um, he has the better handle. He has better passing and, and just better better vision in general. I actually think you could make the case that I, I wasn't doing draft stuff when I was 14, but um, like I think you can look at it pretty easily and say, like, okay, I understand saying Cade's probably a better prospect than Paul George was in some ways. And that might seem lofty, but like I think you look at that and say, okay, well, he doesn't have the absolute elite burst. I think that's just like one way of looking at creating advantages. Um, I trust that as he builds up his body, because he has notably lost some weight since he was at Oklahoma State and he's thinned out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as he starts to build up his body with the Pistons, I'm really interested to see how he handles getting to the rim more. Because I think he has a – I mean, not I think. Like, he, he does have a very good in-between game, but I think it's going to take some time for him to uh, adjust to the physicality of the NBA um, and really get there. Like, I, I think that it's just going to be a matter of time before he becomes an awesome at-room player. Or not awesome, but, like, above average. Because I think that's all you really need to be in some ways. Like, obviously, shooting 70 or 72% at the rim is fantastic, but not every guy is going to do that. Um, like, I, I just believe that he – like, because he's always done it. He's always been a guy who, like, um, you present him a challenge and he absolutely de- demolishes it. And, like, I mean, went from being a non-shooter his senior year in high school to being just, like, randomly a 40% like off the dribble pull up uh, off movement, absolutely dope shooter at Oklahoma state. 
um, in one summer. Like, and that's not trying to overstate anything, but like that's legitimately insane development. Um, so I think I look at it in terms of he has that, like he has the gravity as a three point shooter. Um, and I just think with time, he will get to be an at rim, a, a good at rim finisher and, and, and drawing things that way. But it's definitely like you have to come in with expectat with with lower expectations and know, okay, this is not like within twenty games he's going to be awesome getting to the rim. Like, no, it might take two hundred games. Like, it could take a while for him to get there um, as he really develops and uh, and becomes a little bit more filled out um, and just feels out the game better. But I'm, I'm not like I guess my, my the best way of putting it is I could be worried about it in a playoff setting in some ways. But like, we'll get there when we get there. I think that he's going to be improving on it. And there's a lot of time before we have to be worried about it. Yeah. So a few things I want to address from, from that, which is a really insightful kind of comp. Uh, one, another one that I've heard um, from someone, uh, a friend of ours uh, is that kind of Tatum with better passing. I think that's a pretty good one as well. Um, I think Kate is stronger than Tatum, obviously um, and the handles at a better base on as well, but I think you see kind of the similarities there. Um and then two, I think absolutely Cade was a better prospect than Paul George. I think like Paul definitely had the advantages explosively, both horizontally and vertically. Um, I think Cade had just a little better skill development. Again, I was fairly young as well, um, but just kind of my general perception of just watching some Paul some Paul stuff back for fun. Um, that's kind of how I, I view it. Um, and and two, I think mm-hmm. so. He made the he made the jump as a shooter. I think it was between his like spring AAU season in 2019 and his Montverde year. Unfortunately, Montverde was really uh, tight-lipped about their stats that year, but the mechanics looked a lot more smooth. They looked a lot more. Cl- they looked much more closely resembled what you see now. Um, yeah, kind of had a decent hitch, I believe, when he was the Texas Titans. His final, I think, going into, after his junior year of high school, um, that wasn't present with Montverde. So you saw the, the kind of the fluidity there, and you saw some really nice shot-making flashes at Montverde his senior year on that ridiculous team that uh, just <laughs> boat-raced everyone all the time. Um, and then and I think what I like about Kate, so I definitely think the handle can be a problem at times in conjunction with the burst. Um, but what I like about Kate, what gives me hope, is he's a very intuitive player. So I like the chance for him to develop counters and ways to play around that. Mm-hmm. I think as he adds a little bit back, more of that muscle back, he'll be able to kind of use his frame to shield defenders. Um, Cause he's pretty good at kind of using his, like weaponizing his handle. It's a matter of sometimes when people crowd it, he can get, he can get flustered. Um, so I, I am pretty encouraged, but I think definitely will be something that could matter eventually. And I, I do, I do worry a little bit because I think Cade can be pretty quick off the ground as a leaper, but I don't think it's great. Um, he's not, I mean, he's not going to, because he doesn't have the Bruce, he's not going to like get that big run, runway downhill as a slasher. Um, but so I'm not super concerned, but I would say I'm a little more hesitant about it than I was maybe back in January or December when kind of the season rolled around. It was still something that was an issue, but I definitely feel a little more strongly about it, but I'm not overly worried. Um, I think, I think if anything, like I, I think Cade still has sometimes has a tendency to, he, he kind of has the, again, I'm not comparing to LeBron, but he has the LeBron syndrome of making the conceptually right play versus the you're the best player on the floor play um, at times. And so that would be something I'm, I'm curious about to see how he develops that. Um, but that's kind of my mm-hmm. my thoughts on anything else you want to add before we, we kind of keep going here. But it's a really good question, one that I do think is worth monitoring because I think it could kind of, you know, can Cade be a high, high-level initiator or just one that's pretty good who also needs to play off the ball in, in certain contexts? 
Yeah, I think uh, the way I'd close out on it is I'm just very high on him because uh, he has, like, obviously I don't know him, but, like, you can just tell from how his development has gone that he's a very self-aware mm-hmm. player. Like, um, he knows what what gives him problems and what he needs to improve on. Like, he doesn't – like, not to just make this unfair towards Ben Simmons, but you look at Ben Simmons and the issues that he's had, and there has been very notably uh, some documentation and, and quotes that have come out about his unwillingness to change certain things. Like, Cade has been the exact opposite throughout his career, and I think that just bodes really well for how he's going to develop in the NBA. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, earlier we mentioned the idea of like, good complimentary players around him. Of course, Kelly Linick is not the most incredible player, but I think he's going to help uh, Kate a lot as long as they're help Killian, too. Uh, we don't talk about Killian now, but anyhow, uh, let's let's shift gears. I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Kelly, a guy who I like a lot and is a fellow Zag. So um, anyhow, this this question comes from uh, Rhett Bauer who says, is there too much focus on the Sixers floor space rather than creation and kind of multifaceted players? Um, that's at Rhett, R-H-E-T-T underscore Bauer, B-A-U-E-R. Um, again, I'm paraphrasing, but um, I think absolutely. I think within Sixers circles, it's pretty well documented at this point that like their biggest issue is not really floor spacing. It's the lack of uh, qualified primary that's premier. I was going to say primary versus, versus premier, and I, I morphed the two words. Uh, let's roll with it. Premier half-court creators uh, and playmakers. Because, I mean, look at the rotation last year. They had some pretty good shooters. Basically, everyone outside of Dwight, Ben, and Matisse were guys that you felt confident if they got a good look. It was, it was a, like from three, it was a good outcome for the possession. Um, the issue beyond that was one, Doc did not emphasize three-point volume. I think they were 24th or 25th in three-point rate last year. Uh, and Doc would class do the classic, uh, like, I don't really care about shot selection as long as we win. And, of course, their offense was not very good, and they lost. So, um, not really sure how that, that goes, for, move, goes moving forward. Um, but I think it was much more an issue of the volume and the lack of creators because um, you could station Danny Green or Furkan Korkmaz or Seth or Tobias um, in the weak side corner, and their defender could just sag off because they know that that pass isn't going to get there in a timely manner. So that's kind of my perception of things, kind of their biggest limitation beyond the floor space. I really don't think the floor space is an issue. I think it looks amplified because of the lack of premier creator from from, from the perimeter. But how do you view this this kind of this ordeal, Mark? I think it's a really question from, from Rhett that I think is important to to uh, discuss, but I want to get your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, I think to me, the two, like, I, I do think that they have some space, spacing issues, but it's less about, like, they have shooters, but they don't really have a lot of movement shooters, which is part of my issue with how the team's constructed right now. Like, part of it, it's there aren't a lot of awesome movement shooters in the NBA. But, like, I mean, Furkan hit some stuff off movement last year. Shake's not incredible off movement. Like, Seth is a very good movement shooter, but, like, you can only spam Seth coming off movement so often. Um, and given that he's a small, smaller player, it's not always easier to get your shot off, but like, um, so I think that's one of the issues for them, but then also like, like was just mentioned, like they just, who is consistently getting into the rim and breaking down a defense? Like, uh, they, they really didn't have that last year, at least not consistently. Uh, so I think that's the bigger problem. Um, also random thing. Uh, Sean Sharania just reported that Aaron Gordon agreed to a four year, $92 million contract extension with the, uh, Denver Nuggets. You beat me to it. I was going to break the news to you, but you're, you're on top of it. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, 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 it's too quick for me to make any judgments on that, but awesome for, for AG. I think, it's, I think that 
that spot in Denver, if, if Jamal is back yeah. and healthy, is a really, really good place for him. That's all I can say about it. Um, but, yeah, I think the movement shooting thing is interesting because, one, it's hard to find those guys uh, in the context of a, of a team that is trying to win a title. Um, like, I mean, you look at a guy like J.J. Redick, who was like it was a very good player for them for a couple of years, but um, had some struggles in the playoffs. I mean, you look at a movement shooter like Wayne Ellington, um, I think he's someone who's going to struggle deep in the playoffs. The Lakers make a deep run this year. Um, and even Seth is someone who he found, he really found his confidence in the playoffs. Um, but even that was a lot more kind of the side pick and rolls, the on ball creation, the dribble handoffs and like running off of pin downs and floppies because he's still not great at that. He's not, he's not his brother in that regard. He really kind of prefers to be comfortable and have his feet set. Um, it's, it's very much an art to be able to quickly square your body and have your, and set your feet so quickly. Um, that's why I think a guy yep. like Isaiah Joe, if you can take a step forward, I mean, I, I've talked about him a couple of times on podcasts would really be would really be valuable because he because he has size in the sense that he's taller and even though he's kind of slighter for any plays with a bunch of physicality on both ends uh and he is a ridiculously quick trigger smooth release sets his feet people who have followed my work for a while know i'm a big fan of isaiah joe um so i, I definitely agree there and i think you know they did not a ton of movement shooting but it's it's it, it would look less like an issue if they had kind of a guy who get downhill you know a, a jimmy of course a Tyrese Max by year four. I think Tyrese Max is going to be good this year, but you're still in a little bit of a tough situation if you're relying a ton on a 21-year-old second-year player. Um, that's a good question from Rhett. I really like it, and I think it's important to discuss because I've talked about it at times, but um, I do think it's something that's kind of overlooked. It Generally speaking, around the discourse of the Sixers, it's all about the shooting, but more than anything that, it's they need someone to get downhill and kind of get their shoulder past the defender and get two feet in the paint. Um, you know, So... A uh, good question. I, I really appreciate your your insight on that as well, Mark. Because I think the movement shooting could matter a lot, especially with a guy like Embiid. Who, uh, if you get a guy like I mean, just the Redick and Embiid combo was so good. If you get that now with the, the growth Embiid's made as a scorer, it would really, really do wonders for that offense overall. I think so. Um, I've got a couple more questions here. I know we're already kind of approaching an hour, but um, I think these are really good questions that I want to make sure we get to. We have another one from Cody, which is a really fun philosophical question and uh, conveys that he's listening to my podcast, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it, Cody. Um, Cody says, what's more important between continuity across lineups? Oh, between continuity across lineups and diversity of style across lineups. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but, um, I like that because I have brought up the value of continuity a good bit recently. Um, I wrote my piece on Kemba Walker and the New York Knicks. And I talked about kind of having two off movement guys and quickly and Kemba, you know, as a starter versus a bench guy matters. Um, and I want to, I want to hand the baton to you first, Mark. I want to hear your thoughts. Kind of what do you value more? What do you think is more important between, Having continuity across lineups versus having kind of versatility and diversity of style across lineups. Uh, it's tough because I, I feel like every time I ever answer a mailbag question, <laughs> it comes in like somewhere in the middle. Um, cause there's like a little bit of nuance to it. Like, I don't know. Um, like the way I come down on this, uh, if you are a team that has a ton of stars, so like let's look at Brooklyn. I think continuity matters a lot less for them in their lineups. Like part of the reason I love Brooklyn and the way that their roster is constructed is because they have the opportunity to put whoever they want in any sort of lineup context around their three guys. Like you, if you, if you want to go small, you want to put movement shooters out there. uh, Okay. Throw out Patty Mills, throw out Joe Harris. Um, if you want to, to beef up your front court and you want to get some short role playmaking or, and get some spacing in there as well. Okay. Bring in James Johnson and uh, and Blake Griffin. If you want to have more of a role threat, have Nick Claxton out there. Like they just have the optionality to go to whatever out of their their 
their lineups, and it's almost kind of unfair how much they have. But I'm so excited to watch that. You're uh, you're repeating everything Matt Brooks and I talked about a couple weeks ago when we we discussed the, uh, the Nets. Not that it's bad, but it, well, and it, you, can go to, you can go to Bruce Brown too, and just like ah, oh, God, it's awesome. Yeah. Like they can do so much. <laughs> but then I think too, if you go to a team like let's just looking at Indiana, like. Um, I, I was talking to my dad about this the other day. It was actually really funny. So my dad's a very casual basketball viewer, like watches maybe one game a week with me. Um, and I, I was telling him about how TJ Warren got injured and how that's going to hurt the team. He's like, well, isn't that like, it's easier for the Pacers because they, uh, they have, they don't have a superstar. And I was like, well, you'd think so. But like, I actually think it hurts a team more to lose a starter if they don't have a star player, because, a team like Indiana relies so much on the synergy of having five above average starters on the court that compared to having, you know, like a superstar and a couple of guys who are maybe, you know, like a little bit lower end starters. Um, so like, I think I look at it in terms of it just it, like, it also depends on the system too, but it's more about, is it meaningful? Like having line of, having continuity doesn't matter if your, your stuff kind of sucks. Like if you, if you don't yeah. run really good stuff, uh, congrats on having continuity like the Sixers had Dwight Howard as a as continuity for you know having a seven footer on court did it really help not really like that's reductive of me but like I think there's some some credence there like um I think the Sixers could have really benefited from trying to have some some more versatility last year and I actually I think part of what was frustrating we talked about it too like they have they had the opportunity to be a little bit more flexible with some of their lineups um and I, I, I mean, Doc just did not go to that. I think sometimes he was too flexible and other times he was too rigid. And I think um, it's more about like what you make out of what you have. Like, I think having, having versatility can be really good if, if you have the ability to make it work and then having continuity is really, can be really good if you have the ability to make it work. But um, it just really depends on the team. Yeah. I, that, that point you made about like it, it, continuity is doesn't, doesn't really matter if you're, if it's not like, if, it's, if you're not being, if you don't have, if you're not streamlining continuity with something that works, uh, you read right off my nose basically there. Um, but, but I think that's kind of part of my thing too, is like, you're, if you're trying to preserve continuity, you want it to be something that works. Um, and I think, but I think that having diversity across lineups, which you're getting at with Brooklyn can be a form of continuity. I think if there's something that you can really take away from these playoffs, even though it was a really weird year and a lot of guys were injured, it's that versatility matters a ton. I think the way Milwaukee is able to throw like 14,000 different pick and roll coverages across those four rounds is a sign of that. I think that's a strength. So um, that's how I, I feel about it. But ultimately, I think um, I side more with the idea of building upon your strengths. But I think in a playoff setting, a strength of yours should be versatility and diversity of, con- diversity of styles. So um, that's a very kind of lukewarm answer to Cody's question. But I think... I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I'm not necessarily saying that Cody was suggesting that, but I think that versatility can be a form of continuity. We're using a lot of words that end in ITY today. Um, flexibility, continuity, malleability, diversity. Let's get into all of them. Let's, 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 uh, anyhow. Um, so that's my answer to it, that I think, you know, maintaining your strengths uh, through continuity is something that I'm a proponent of more than just having versatility for the sake of it. But I think the ability to, counter different opponents especially in a playoff setting is a form of continuity so that's that's my answer to it but i really like the question from cody because it's something that i have mentioned both in writing and and, and in podcast form the last couple of months um that that matters and i do want to give a shout out. i think it's tj ferrick 
on Twitter who first brought that up when as a, as a concept when the Hawks drafted uh, Sharif Cooper in relation to Trey Young. So um, cr- uh, props to TJ for kind of introducing that theory to me a little more. Um, so uh, good question there from Cody. Cody brought two awesome questions. All these questions have been awesome, but um, Cody and Gabe double dip with a couple of uh, great ones for each of, from each of them. So uh, they get the two gold stars of the day. Uh, and of course, Mark gets a gold star for being a wonderful guest. But um, we have one more question, if that's all right, Mark. Um, this comes from Dylan McKinnon. Um, <laughs> he says, do, do we believe Ben Simmons can yeah, become sure. a 16-game player? Um, we always got to talk about Ben Simmons. Don't we? Not that, I mean, obviously I chose this question, so I didn't have to. But it um, wouldn't be a Sixers pod in the offseason or wouldn't be a, one of my podcasts without mentioning Ben Simmons here. Um, I, I want to believe that a new setting could be refreshing for him and invite some new development. But I'm not really confident in Ben becoming a 16-game player. And I think that phrase can be a little bit, like, a little bit shallow. And I know Dylan was just trying to get his point across to understand what it means. But I think I, fr- I frame it as, like, I don't feel confident in Ben being, like, really good and maintaining all sort of impact against maybe a third of the league in the playoffs, which I think is roughly fair, about, about 10 teams there. Because I, I just, like, you know, this is, he hasn't really gotten better through four years offensively. And through three, I mean, I get, I would say, I would say, two, two playoff series. I don't know how he's going to respond to year three of the playoffs. So I don't want to, you know, infer anything yet there. But I just, I don't know what sort of like faith I should have in him becoming a really good All Star caliber player in the playoffs. It'd be based off kind of what we've seen. So like, I'm not trying to put him down or anything. And like, I, again, I think a fresh start will be good for him. But like, I just, I don't know why things would change now after, you know, we had two tough playoff runs, you know, offensively. Uh, and it just hasn't changed. Now it's been three, um, but I can't say it hasn't changed yet because I don't know what's going to happen for him in year five. So I don't really feel confident in Ben as a 16-game player um, just based on what we've seen. How do you feel about this, Mark? Uh, yeah, it's I don't, I don't have an awesome answer. Uh, I think one thing I would add, too, like, like I'm definitely optimistic about things working out for Ben. Um, but I would also say I just think there's been this general conception that Ben and Embiid didn't work together, and I just think that's wrong. Like, yes, it got heightened in the playoffs, but, like, I mean, even just, like, you can't chalk everything up to numbers, but, like, just looking at how good they were on court together like that, they were a dominant duo on court together. Um, so, like, I just wonder how much better is the setting going to be for him. And I keep hearing, too, like, I don't mean to keep bringing this back to what other people are saying, but it's just more like – a lot of people are bringing up, oh, well, you could play him like Giannis, even though and with the caveat that he's not Giannis. I'm like, well, exactly. Like, how are you supposed to play him like Giannis if he's not Giannis? Like, uh, I went back and I watched, like, all of his pick-and-roll possessions from this last year. It's kind of astonishing how little he actually passes out of pick-and-roll. Like, that stood out to me a lot. Like, almost every pick-and-roll possession he runs, part of it is difficult because so much of it is that snug pick-and-roll at the elbow. Um, but also like you don't see him kick out to the corner very often. Part of it, like, I mean, he is a very good finisher out of pick and roll, but like, I just like, that's that. I mean, I honestly would say that Giannis is a better pick and roll playmaker than Ben is in some regards. Um, and I, I also think like, it's a, been a little bit disingenuous how much people have said like, Oh, well, Ben can't run pick and roll. Like I, I mean, that's false. He ran pick and roll like three times a game last year. Um, so like pretty solid degrees of, of a, efficacy um but like i i just th- my i do think that there's a, a a vision where it becomes like um 
okay, maybe not a 16 game player, but maybe he becomes like a, an 11 game player or something like that. Like we won't see it and, and know for sure until he's in a different spot. But like, I think a lot of it's just going to be, okay, well, can he be a different 82 game player first? Because I think that's, mm-hmm. that's more important to me. Like, can he make changes in the regular season that I can, that can give me some confidence that he will be different in the, in the playoffs. Cause right now, I mean, that's what's going to matter. Um, like clearly he's going to go somewhere that's not going to be looking at being a 16 game team and for, for a little bit. Um, so I think that, again, hedging my bets a little bit, but I, I think yes and no, I, there's definitely a lot that has to come about from it, but um, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what happens. Yeah. I mean, you, you want to be optimistic about a guy's development because he's only he just turned 25, but given he hasn't really developed much in the previous four years in the NBA, it's tough to be really optimistic about it. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the things that goes overlooked um, is Ben and Joel were arguably the best defensive duo in the NBA the last couple of years. Um, I would say more more this year, Joel, I think had a down year two years ago. Um, But like, I think that goes like, I mean, those two and pick and rolls together, like just were brilliant so often defensively, just like shut things down with their size and mobility together. Um, I mean, I think you could say that, like, maybe Brooke and Giannis, maybe Drew and Giannis, maybe AD and LeBron. But, other, like, I, maybe, I'm maybe like, if you... Yeah, I would have I mean, been if you well. really wanted to get in there, I, yeah, you could I, say I, Bam I and Jimmy. You. I mean, Jimmy was great this year defensively. I'm just listing some other candidates. Um, but, I mean, they, they were incredible defensively. Obviously, there's shortcomings offensively. But um, if, ben de- if Ben had developed more, I don't think they, there would be that much of an issue that the defense would really... Um, or develop more offense, excuse me. Um, the defense would really overwhelm guys or teams. So, yeah, I generally agree. I think, you know, because if he becomes a better 82-game player, it would probably indicate growth for the playoffs. So I think those things kind of go hand-in-hand. Hand. Like, I think he's about as good as he can get in regular season without making strides that, you know, bear or, or kind of fare well or indicate well for the playoffs. Um, and, I mean, like, who Ben is in the regular season has been excellent. I mean, two years ago especially, he was – Phenomenal. I don't think he was quite all NBA caliber, but I think he was a top 25-ish guy two years ago. Um, and so you're not that far off. Um, and so I think he can be really good. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely some stuff that's been overblown with him. I get I get the concerns, of course. I've talked about them extensively. But, yeah, it's just to say, I, but to answer your question, Dylan, I'm fairly pessimistic, but I won't rule it out because I do think a new situation could be good for him. But I, I think there's been enough evidence to show where he needs to get better, and he hasn't done it yet. So it leaves me a little skeptical, even though he's still only is 25. But, um, Mark, really appreciate you taking about 75 minutes out of your afternoon today to answer these questions. Appreciate everyone for listening. Appreciate everyone for giving us these questions. They're really, really insightful. Again, if I didn't answer one of the questions you asked, it's probably because I've answered either on a previous mailbag episode or on a previous episode of the podcast um, in one form or another. So uh, I do try to do pretty in-depth descriptions uh, wherever you get your podcast. So go check those out if you're looking for an answer to the question that is not addressed here. Um, but Mark, give yourself a little shout out. Uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow your work and uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks again for having me on, man. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MSchindlerNBA. Uh, I do all my work over at Premium Hoops as well as Indy Cornrows covering the Indiana Pacers. Uh, and right now, uh, I also have a Patreon up. I'm trying to do more writing over there. Um, I've TBD on how things are going to be looking there this coming season. I'm probably going to have some things changing up work-wise and, and where I'm at and how things are going. Um, so you can... If, if you do have the means to contribute uh, on Patreon and you enjoy my work, 
Uh, that would be greatly appreciated. If not, I totally understand. But just thanks Tom, for listening and having me on, man. Yeah, of course. Always enjoy talking uh, talking basketball with you, and I'm sure we'll continue to do it as the season gets closer. We're uh, officially two weeks away from the start of training camp as of September 14th. So uh, very much enjoying, insane, enjoying this. Um, but yeah, I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow, actually. I'm going to uh, be bringing on Caitlin Cooper to talk some uh, Pacers stuff. Uh, we won't be on Green Room, but it'll be behind the scenes. But I'll have it up pretty quickly after we record. So um, appreciate everyone listening. Uh, in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.